Well, today is Trinity Sunday, and having Trinity Sunday in the church year is a good thing because, well, it gives us an opportunity to focus on the Christian God. The Trinity is what makes the Christian God Christian. And so we're reminded that we are not worshipers of God in general, but worshipers of the Christian God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who in his own being and life is the supreme truth, what one theologian called the sublime treasure of the Christian faith. This one, then, this triune God, is your origin He is your present help and preserver and sustainer, and He is our end. You know, that's beautifully, I noticed as we sung it, it's beautifully enshrined with elegant simplicity and depth in the Gloria Patri. We give glory to the Father, we ascribe glory to the Son, and we ascribe glory to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, as the one who is our source and origin, as it is now as the one who is your life and sustenance, and as it ever shall be. We are Trinitarians from beginning to end at every point. It's not something we just tack on. Nevertheless, Trinity Sunday can be problematic because it seems like we're just sticking this topic in as one topic among other topics. can obscure the fact that every Sunday is Trinity Sunday because, and if you're in my Sunday school class, you know this, because there are only two things which exist. The triune God and the works of the triune God. There are no non-Trinitarian things in the cosmos. There are only two things that exist. The triune God And the works of the triune God. He is before, he is above, he is under, he is in, he is through, as triune, all things. And I hope that this morning we can see, or at least get a glimpse of the Trinity in in a manner which is, I think, simple and clear. And I think we'll see, perhaps surprisingly, that it's of great relevance to the church's life. Part of what I'm trying to do here this morning... And this is, uh, I think, every preacher's challenge on the Trinity is to convince us that this matters and it matters profoundly and it matters on the ground of your Christian life. So our text is going to be simply the last verse of the New Testament reading. That famous benediction, which is also a prayer from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Notice this. Notice how simply and how effortlessly the Trinity just sort of appears in fullness here. There's no long, complicated discourse from Paul. The living reality of the Trinity simply shines forth in his prayer for his blessing of the Christians at Corinth. 
Paul is what we might call an instinctive Trinitarian. He's a Trinitarian by instinct. We tend to be instinctive monotheists, like we believe in God, but we have to sort of fight and scratch our way to find the other persons. But for Paul, it's basic. So it's not like we have the Bible and we have to go rummaging through it for texts to prove that God is a trinity, like we're hunting around for trinity verses. If you step back, what you want to say is something more like this. Because Yahweh, the God of Israel, reveals himself by sending forth his Son and sending forth the Spirit, therefore, we have a Bible. The Trinity's before the Bible. The Trinity doesn't come after the Bible. It's because God is triune and has revealed himself as triune. It's because the Father has sent the Son and sent the Spirit that we even have Holy Scripture. And this is the way Paul thinks. And the fact that Paul leaves the Corinthian church, think of this, the Corinthian church, he leaves them with this. After this very long, if you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, this long set of turbulent correspondence, it shows that he thinks that this is important and relevant to them. And so we'll make four points. They're there on the outline on the back inside page of your bulletin. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship or communion of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the fourth point is be with you all. So first, first then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice in this text that the persons appear here out of what we might call their normal order. We're used to thinking Father, Son, Spirit. And this is probably because Paul is following the order of your experience, our experience of salvation. We first, the first thing we do is we encounter the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, this Jesus cracks open, if you will. He cracks open Jewish monotheism. And he does it in a way which inevitably leads to this full-blooded Christian Trinitarianism. Again, we are not simply monotheists. We do not simply believe in God. We are Trinitarians all the way down at every point. And it matters, as we see in Paul, it matters for not just your faith. It matters for your life. It matters for our mission that we are Trinitarian. So we begin with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? I think... I think we say most simply it's God's saving favor to us in our lost estate. It's undeserved. It's the freely given gift of God by which we are redeemed. We're all familiar with it, I think, but perhaps overly familiar. Grace, in this sense, is a completely new and unique thing in the world. Think about into this world, into this age, where, as they say, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Where everything is viewed, to some extent rightly, 
as working according to either biological or mechanical or some kind of fixed law. Where you merit what you get. Merit is the order of the day. Where everybody strives and fights and hopes to get what they deserve, what they've earned, into this world. With all of its inexorable laws comes the free grace of God. Comes this thing called grace to to people who not only don't deserve it, but positively deserve judgment instead. This is the wonder of grace. And so grace, for all of our familiarity with it, is really radically different from the way we naturally and sort of instinctively view the world. It's so different that the wonder of it stretches Paul's apostolic vocabulary. It's not simply an undeserved gift. For him, it's an undeserved, boundless bounty. So he calls this grace things like rich and lavish and incomparable and glorious and unsearchable, superabundant. He makes words up. Paul actually makes words up to get this, get at this. And so we see here that God is no miser. God is not peevish. This grace overflows out of the glorious fullness of his own life to those who deserve nothing but judgment. And we haven't begun to grasp this until we feel the scandal of it. Until we sense that it's profoundly, in fact, unfair. This was the scandal of the New Testament. Paul had to defend himself against teaching that people had the liberty to just go ahead and sin because of grace. So exalted was his presentation of the free grace of God that people could sense there was something unfair about it. Something that called into question a basic just order of things where things are done rightly. I suspect that we ourselves see this in our hearts, that we don't grasp this. We're pretty good, I would say, most of us, at charity, if we think the person is deserving, or we think they're a pretty good person, or maybe they've fallen on hard times. There's someone who's just sort of in need, and we're willing to help them out. Try it, though, with a person who's ungrateful to you, who doesn't like you, who you don't like. Or how about a person who is in the predicament they're in because they messed up their own life? They made their bed. Let them clean it up. Then all of a sudden, we realize that this thing called grace, which comes to people who profoundly don't deserve it, has not really quite captured our hearts the way we think it has. It's a radical thing. And there's nothing in our lives, there's no situation or trial which stands outside of our need for this. This is what we need. We just don't need a little assistance. We need this. It is grace... Grace, this grace which brought us safe thus far, and nothing but this grace which will lead us home. And it's personal here. In addition to this, the grace is personal. It's the grace, notice the text says, of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning the grace of which he's the never-failing source. Grace which comes from him. This is why in the Old Testament, Yahweh reveals himself and he reveals his character to Moses. And the first thing he says is, Yahweh the Lord is gracious and compassionate. So I want to say a word here about the, the works of the Trinity, lest a text like this perhaps create some confusion. God is one in all of his works. All three persons, they work together. They work in perfect harmony in every work of God. They don't divide things up. Yet they don't do exactly the same things in the same way. For instance, only the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becomes man. Not the Father or the Spirit. And so the church has understood by this that certain things belong in a particular way to a certain person of the Trinity. With the understanding that the other persons are involved, fully involved, just in a different manner. Atonement is centered on the Son, but the Father sends and gives the Son, and the Spirit empowers the Son. So when Paul here says, or attributes grace as coming from the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not implying that when it comes to grace, the Father and the Spirit have nothing to do with it. That's the point I want to get across here. He's simply saying that grace comes to us in a sort of central way, a sort of prominent way, through the person and work of the Son. So back, back to the main point here. Back to the main point. So grace comes to us personally from the one Paul calls here the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this is from simply that title. You can see what was meant earlier when I said Jesus cracks open the Holy Trinity. As Lord, he is the one who is one with the Father. Lord is a term that, says, that's, that means Yahweh. As Jesus, he's the incarnate second person of the Trinity. And as Christ, he's the one who's anointed with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus Christ is a Trinitarian title ascribed to the Son. But that's an aside. When Paul, use, Paul uses this term elsewhere, he says, you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might be made rich. And so when we think of this grace, this gift, we should think of the whole life, the whole outpouring, the whole condescension and descent, especially, especially the death of Jesus Christ. All of that, the whole thing, is the indescribable gift of grace to help us, to save us in our poverty. And it is this, Lord Jesus Christ, who opens up to us a glimpse into the heart of God as he is in himself. So that's the first point, and that brings us to the second point, which is the love of God. God in this context clearly means God the Father. It's the New Testament practice. When you see the word God in your New Testament, it generally means the Father. 
And here we're, spoke, we're, we're directed to the love of God. God is love. He is not law or raw power. He's not karma or some energy. He's utterly and completely love. In fact, he's not even human love exalted to the highest magnitude. He is the definition of love itself. And then we partake of that. So God is love. Or to, or to, to riff off of what John says, God is love and in him there's no hatred at all. Pure, holy love. There's nothing dark. There's nothing unlovely. There's no yin and yang in the being of God. Whatever you want to make of all the wrath and judgment scriptures, there's no hatred in God. And when we say that God is love, and we've been also doing this in Sunday school, we are speaking the language of the Trinity. Because love cannot exist in isolation. It needs another. It needs the other, another person to express itself toward. Love has a kind of mutuality to exist. That other person receives the love and reciprocates the love. And so if God were an isolated, solitary being, he could not be the Christian God. Love would not exist. When we say God is love, we are saying so much more than God is loving. We mean he's a communion. He's a community of loving persons. The Father is the source. The Son receives the love from the Father and reciprocates it in the Spirit. That the Father and the Son and the Spirit exist in this delightful, eternal, free, fully mutual relationship of love. And that set of loving relationships is God. God is love. And this this love, perfect and full, God is happy. He's fully realized. He's in need of nothing. This love is such that it it does not desire to be closed in on itself. And so this God creates the world. He showers this goodness on his creatures. You look at the creation differently if you think of God as the Holy Trinity. Right now the creation is the Father, out of his infinite and tender love, diffusing that love through the Son in the Spirit onto all of his creatures, radiating it out. Out of this love, then, the Father sends forth the Son. It's from the depths, Paul is saying something like this, from the depths of the unchanging eternal love of God springs forth the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, of which you've become partakers. And so God is love, and this is also personal. God does not simply love humanity in general. You know the quip about people who love humanity in general. They're not very good with loving people in particular. They just love humanity in general. That's not how God is. God does not simply love humanity in general. The love here is love for the Corinthian Christians, for the Corinthian church. He loves you, and he loves me in particular. He loves us as individuals. The Father loves me, this I know, 
Because the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ shows me so. You know, one of the things we learn here is that the love with which God loves you, think about this, is is not just love in general, but it's the love that the Father has for the Son. The love that the Father has for the Son is the love that God loves you with. And so this love of God the Father is profoundly reassuring to us. Among many things, it it does this. It tells us there's no dark, brooding, unloving, angry God behind the back of Jesus Christ. This was a favorite uh, way of putting things by the Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance. There's no dark, brooding God behind the back of Jesus Christ, he would say throughout his writings. And he tells a story of two separate incidents in his ministry, separated by many years. One when he was a chaplain in World War II, and he had to tend to a dying soldier. And the soldier asked him a question that he found at the time startling. The soldier asked him, is God really like Jesus? And Torin says that decades later, in a hospital, he got the same question from an elderly woman who was about to die. And he realized that perhaps many, or at least some, sense that there's some sort of angry, brooding God behind the face of Jesus. That maybe God is not really like Jesus. And so this is where the Trinity becomes a matter of comfort and assurance in life and death. To look into the face of the dying Jesus, to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to see the eternal, unchanging love of God the Father. I and the Father are one means there is no gap between them. No gap in their eternal being. No gap in their actions towards you in time. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the love of God the Father in action towards you and for your sake. What does John say? He says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the love which God is, then is the fountain from which all even human love flows. John goes on to say, we're to love one another because love comes from God. For God is love. No trinity, no communion of the saints. And so that brings us to the third point, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So, in love, the Father sends the Son. In grace, free grace, the Son accomplishes your salvation. And as the third person of the Holy Trinity, as Lord and God, the Spirit gathers us into communion. The Spirit is a beautifier, a perfecter, a consummator. He reintegrates things. I want to say a couple things about this communion of the Holy Spirit. Notice this, it first the first thing it does is it refers us back to the life of God himself. He's a fellowship. He's a communion. One of the real important things, just in general, about thinking about the Trinity is trying to trace, if you will, in your mind and heart, back from your experience, your redemption, the works of God, Trace these things back into and find them grounded in and rooted in the very being and life of God itself. Sometimes we forget that, right? We're, 
we're so, we're so focused on some aspect of the Christian story that we miss the big picture. That the triune God is our origin and our end. Even redemption is for the sake of communion with the triune God. Reconciliation, forgiveness, redemption, salvation. They are not ends in themselves. Do you realize that? Your salvation is not an end. It's a means to an end. The end is living everlasting communion with this God. So when we speak of the communion of the Holy Spirit, it refers us back to God himself. Communion or fellowship, if you will, is the Spirit's job description. And so the Spirit works then to bring us into communion with this God. And that means the Holy Spirit mightily and victoriously is at war against all our deceit. He's overcoming our opposition. He is sent forth to make the reconciliation won for us by Christ real. He is the immediate reason that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have communion with God. And so this Holy Spirit is sent. He unites you to Christ so that you can cry out, Abba, Father. The love that the Father has for the Son has been given to you so that you can now express the love that the Son has through the Father in the Holy Spirit. And the other thing to see here about the Spirit is having united us to God, He unites us to one another. Right? The Spirit is a communion-creating Spirit. He creates this community of the church. Paul says there is one body because there is one Spirit. This means the Holy Spirit creates the church as a communion of love. And this means the church is a reflection of the Holy Trinity itself. That's what the church is. An earthly, historical, fully human reflection of the communion of love that is God himself. So, the Spirit's work here is not an afterthought. You know, without the work of the Spirit, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be in vain, as would the love of the Father. So we could summarize everything I've said to this point with a wonderful citation I like from Jonathan Edwards. Edward says that the Father created the world so that the Spirit could gather a bride for his Son. The whole purpose of creation in the cosmos is that Trinitarian purpose. And now, to the final point. The point which is, I think, immensely important. The last words of the benediction be with you all. So here's Paul's thought. The love of God and this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this fellowship or communion of the Spirit are not things that we simply confess, right? They're not abstractions. They don't exist in the ether for theologians to ponder. High theology is highly practical. These things, Paul says, must be with us. All. We must embrace the Trinity because we're embraced by the Trinity. Remember, this is how Paul concludes his correspondence to the Corinthian church, and that's a church riddled with strife 
and rivalry and corrupt practice and corrupt doctrine and all sorts of disorders, astonishing disorders really. And this benediction then, this benediction constitutes his prayer for them. It's his apostolic medicine for all of their illnesses. Whatever a church needs in any given concrete situation, you could multiply the situations by the millions, you would come back to this. They need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the ever-living Spirit to be with them. The church does not simply confess the triune God. This is not a mental exercise. We desperately need the triune God. We don't need God in general. There is no God in general. Right? To, to think of God in a base or confused or distorted way is something that we have to be done with. We need this God. And we need Him as a living, abiding, pulsating reality. The Holy Trinity is our life. So the love of God the Father, then, creates love among us. And that love requires that we love one another even as we have been loved. Out of the depth of that unfathomable love, you've been loved. Therefore, love one another. That's why Paul tells this church earlier, this love is not proud. It doesn't boast. It isn't self-seeking. It's not provoked. It keeps no record of wrongs. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes. It endures. It must be with us to be the body of Christ. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ demands, maybe demands is too harsh a word, seeks to instill graciousness in us. Right? It requires that we not give people their just desserts. That's one of a sign, that is a sign, beloved, of Christian conversion. That you're a person who does not give people what they deserve. Because God has not given you what you deserve. And so this grace has to season our speech and induce humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sheer generosity of God, opens us up in generosity to all the saints. And the fellowship, the communion of the Holy Spirit must overcome all of our alienation. All of our nursed hurts. All of our long historical memories. All of our jealousies and envy and all of our little subtle estrangements. The Spirit is at war with those things, beloved. He is at war with those things. He is determined to create a communion of holy ones, of saints, who live with one another in such a way that reflects the triune communion of love among the Father and the Son in the Spirit. This love of God the Father, this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this fellowship of the Spirit are, and they must increasingly be, with us all. Every last one. This, then, is what it means 
It's just a scratch on the surface, but this is what it means to be Trinitarian. And to be a full-blooded Trinitarian is simply to be a Christian. We don't want to be deists who happen to believe in Jesus. That's not what we are. To be a full-blooded Trinitarian is just what it means to be a Christian. We confess, we live in, we live by, we delight in and hope in this God, the God of grace, the God of love, and the God of communion. And so with the church of all ages, we say glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning in God's eternal life, as it is now in the life of the church, and as it ever shall be world without end in the glory of the new creation. Amen.